Hello, everybody, our faithful listeners. This is Pastor Alyssa DeWolf with Andrew Conley Holcomb, Pastor Andrew Conley. The Rev, if you will. Um, We are back with our continuing conversation, and we are kind of jumping back while moving forward. We're going to be talking about evangelism, which was our initial topic before we did our two-part series on white privilege and being anti-racist, but... With everything that's going on in the world, we cannot not talk about um, evangelism while also talking about inclusion and um, especially talking about this rhetoric of all lives matter versus black lives matter and why it's important to say black lives matter. Absolutely. And especially in the church. I think this is where, you know, we did this two-part series and at the end of it, I'm still thinking like, if this isn't grounded in Jesus, I'm not sure why we're doing it. Mm. And so I think this episode, we really want to talk about how do we ground our activism in Jesus, in the ministry of Christ, in the salvific work of Jesus on earth, and how does it, how does it show up as a manifestation of our faith rather than a manifestation of our good white people identity? Yeah. And this interplay between... Um you know, a Jesus church versus a justice church. And, you know, I've joked about coming from the Pentecostal background is a lot of the work I do in the um, progressive churches, I feel like is me bringing Jesus back into the equation. Yeah. Um, And some people get, you know, uncomfortable with that. Like, oh gosh, we're like really diving deep into the Bible. Like, can't we just stay on this sort of like surface level of justice? Like just do good things to help the world, make it a better place. Um, But it's so critical to bring people back to the why. Like, why are we doing this work? Uh, But on the other hand, you know, working also, I do a lot of bridge building work between conservative and progressive worlds because I can speak both languages. And there is this great need for teaching those who are, you know, centralized in scripture and in Jesus about justice and why justice is important. And I actually, in college, had an argument with a, a friend, a peer, a friend of mine about why justice mattered um, and not why just conversion mattered. Uh-huh. And so I was arguing with this guy of like, no, like Jesus tells us to like feed the hungry and right. help the poor and like go, you know, support the widow. And he's like, yeah. But Jesus really told us that we need to just like save people so that they can get into heaven. And like that's justice is not as important. It's a distraction from Mm. conversion. I was like, what in the world? Why am I arguing with you that justice is a Jesus thing and that it's critical to who we are as people of faith? If not critical, it's like it's the point. Well, but I think what's interesting about that is it all depends on how you read the scripture. So like I just did an examination of Psalm 146. And in Psalm 146, it's completely unambiguous that it is the Lord that sets the prisoners free. It is the Lord that feeds the hungry. It is the Lord that clothes the naked. God is the one that does justice work in the world. And so you could interpret that to say, God does it. I'm just supposed to worship God. Except how does God do that? (laughs) Right? God does it because God is at work in your heart and in your life. You know, this young man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, says, don't call me good, 
right? The one guy who gets to say, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm all good. Yeah. You know, because what he's trying to say is you have to be centered in God if you want goodness to be produced because God is the seed of goodness. And so if we want to be actually committed to real, authentic, durable justice work, it has to be grounded in our relationship with God. Otherwise, it'll be performance. It'll be ego. It'll be uh, you know, trying to make sure everybody knows that we're woke instead of actually doing the work that God has put on our hearts and in our lives to do. I think, and that's the part that just, it just irritates me so much is I think sometimes we get, uh, we get our social justice platforms ahead of our spiritual awakening platforms. And of course they go awry and of course they become white you know, ally performance. And of course they become more about making sure we have the right banners on our churches than making sure we're making the right commitments with our time. Yes. Yeah. So, but the way I see this actually playing out the most is who we focus on. Yeah. Right. We focus on talking to people that are down with our social justice platform and then trying to like somehow maybe convince them that church isn't a bunch of bullshit. Instead of starting with like, hey, are you looking for a place to grow spiritually? Let's grow spiritually and align that spiritual growth with this sense of inclusion and diversity and, and justice for all people as beloved children of God. You know, like predicated upon the theology. But we're just so much more comfortable talking to a bunch of other SJWs than we are talking to Jesus people. Now, define what SJW is. Yeah, so SJW is a derogatory term that came out of kind of conservative online organizing to be uh, dismissive of folks that are working for the movement for black lives or folks that are working for queer inclusion or folks that are working for um, uh, climate crisis intervention, right? It's supposed to be this dismissive framing but like every time i hear it i'm like yeah you know if i'm gonna be for? social justice warrior okay that's what i thought but if i'm gonna be if i'm gonna be in some kind of army if that's gonna be a framework i'm at all gonna use which i'm not happy about anyway but if <laughs> if i'm gonna be the loyal servant of some kind of army yeah uh then that's what it's gonna be it's gonna be in the service of uh of the justice of god well, and we have to be careful as, as the progressive church not to make ourselves into a not just a nonprofit. Right. Like, right. Amen. We, the work that we do within the church, whether it's feeding the hungry or helping the poor, um, if it is not informed and inspired and led by the divine and the spirit, and if there is not a deeper component yes. going on in that, then we shouldn't call ourselves church. We should just call ourselves, you know, nonprofit. And we're going to be way worse as a housing nonprofit than the housing nonprofits are. Way worse <laughs> as a food bank than the food banks. I mean, this is the thing. The gift we have to give is helping people deepen their relationship with God. Our core gift is not building tiny houses. Our core gift is not distributing food. Our core gift is not emergency shelter. We might do those things, but we do those things because of the pull of God on our lives. And that's where we center. And I think sometimes it's so easy in the progressive church to get distracted by our programming or our our demonstrable wokeness. Well, it goes back to the, you know, ancient argument of like works versus faith. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, how what what's the perfect 
ingredient for the, you know, faith soup for like the God soup. How much work do we put in? How much faith do we put in? And, and the conversation is really not about like works versus faith, but it's about, um, you know, it's, I see it more as like a vertical sort of like, what are your roots right. and how deep are your roots and how well are you tending them and how, um, open are you to the transforming power of God and the transforming work of the spirit within yourself and within your community. And when we think about that, the spirit as doing this work of transformation, we then are inspired to be the hands and feet of that work, but it's coming out of a place of deep, Faith. Yes. It's informed by our faith. Um, we we cannot disconnect them from each other. Right. Did you know that uh, a tree can only have branches as long as its roots are wide? I did not know that. I think that's a perfect metaphor to exactly to your point, right? Like we can only reach as far as our roots go deep. Did you also know that ch- ch- most trees, um, with their when they have healthy uh, roots that they communicate with one another, mm-hmm. that their roots create a system and a network that strengthens the rest of the forest. And um, they uh, affect the, um, the chemical composition of the soil to make other friendly species of plants able to grow there that then participate in a biofeedback loop. Trees are amazing. But they're perfect examples for us of, you know, what God is calling us into is it's, not just, you know, dig the hole, plant the tree, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. It, it's about, you know, sustainability, really. Um, but so I, I, we get this pushback a lot in when we go into those jesus circles, right? And we go and we talk about justice mm-hmm. and uh, people say, well, but the primary emphasis of Christianity is to get people saved, right? Mm-hmm. And the emphasis on this conversation about salvation, um, you know, and, and you had an interesting quote about this I wanted you to share with folks. <laughs> so one of my family members um, posted this recently in response to the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, the unrest in our country surrounding race relations. And they posted uh, two, it goes, Quote, 2,000 years ago, Jesus ended the debate on which lives matter. He died for all, end quote. (laughs) And at first glance, you're like, okay, yeah, I totally agree with that. Like, Jesus definitely stood for, you know, all lives matter and humanity and dying for everyone. But, But the way, the intention behind this quote is not to uphold or understand this Black Lives Matter movement, it, it defaults to that all lives matter, but not even just defaulting to all lives matter, but to sort of this idea that like, well, Jesus did the work, therefore, like, I don't need to do anything. The The work is just to believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, then you have access to this idea of Jesus dying for you and, and you only matter if you understand that you matter by Jesus. If that makes sense. Right. And this is where it's like, if our, if progressive Christians were more biblically literate, they'd immediately be able to say, yes, and who did Jesus minister to? Exactly. The marginalized and disenfranchised and the ones who are being left out of power systems and structures. And who murdered Jesus? The powerful elite and the ones that were unconscious about the ways that they were complicit with violence. 
Oh my God. So I was just talking to an activist friend yesterday and we, uh, we were talking and she said to me, yeah, I just read this quote that said, there's no white people in the Bible. And uh, then she was reading oh, the yeah, comments yeah. about it and the comment about it was, well, what about the Romans? And so we looked at each other and we were like, the only white men in the Bible are the ones that murdered Jesus. <laughs> and I was just like, man, can we say that a couple of times? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, oh, lost my train of thought for a second. <laughs> so we were talking about this idea of, um, you know, Jesus and salvation, oh. but like, what's his ministry? Going? Yes, I remember. Well, and if we're going to, if we're going to stand up and say that Jesus is saying all lives matter or that Jesus, you know, died for all, then we should even more so be standing yes. on the street corner saying black lives matter. Yes. Because if we have a group of people within our communities and within our world that are not receiving the same kind of, you know, food, housing opportunities that I myself of a different color are receiving, then more than ever should I be standing up and saying, you matter just as much as I matter, but the system is, is, is demoting you. Right from the way that God sees you. Right. And so it's like if we're all, you know, beloved children of God, as your scripture says to us over and over again, then that doesn't mean that like the argument is over. It means that it, it should be a catalyst for us to to realize that there is inequality. Right. And that as long as that inequality stays around, that the statement that we are all beloved children of God is not true. Right. Well, and I think the like... It's not made true. It's not made true. Right. Because injustice is injustice against God. Yes. Not just injustice against people. It's injustice against God. And if we were really knit together in God, then an injustice against one would be an injustice against all. Well, and God is drawing us into a greater, more amazing idea of what we as individuals and as community can be. And so it's, you know... The, the whole like Jesus paid it all, like the work is done is like, I really see it as like Jesus started it all. Like, and not even started it, like Jesus like restarted it. Like right. resurrection, you know, really. But, but the spirit I feel like is really calling us into this like ascension, you know, move beyond what the world is telling you is normal and right and has, you know, historical and move beyond to a way of seeing the world as the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when we begin to sort of see these things we uphold as like the norm, we recognize that they're only normal because we call them normal. Right. That we can define and create and make and change things however way we want, but we must be guided by a greater purpose. And for me, my greater purpose is guided by the teachings of Jesus and the Holy Scriptures. Right. Well, and if we've become adjusted to injustice, then we've stopped letting God be the one who adjusts us. Because God does not adjust us into injustice. God is the chiropractor of the world that it brings us out of our <laughs> misalignment, right? Which is another way to translate sin is misalignment. Yeah. You know, God is the one. And if you're, if, if you're, if you're misaligned, your walk is going to be crooked. That's just a fact of being misaligned. Your walk is going to be crooked. And so we have to let God, the divine chiropractor, do some work on us. 
And I think this is one of the big things is when people start doing this kind of dismissive stuff, I think what they're really doing is they're avoiding dealing with their own confession of mm-hmm. misalignment. They're, they're trying to avoid this idea that they have work to do. Because yeah. if we're really going to follow Jesus, the thing we have to do is repent. You know, we have to start doing our own work. Like, what well, does it mean for Jesus to save us? We have to say he is savior. And what does he do to save people? He calls them out and calls them into a greater sense of participation in the world. And, and he disrupts the normal order of oh, things. Of course, of course. I mean, I've seen the rhetoric too um, coming out of the conservative church too, where it's like, you know, well, Christians are persecuted. And like, if we stand up for what we believe, like, okay, Yes, that has happened in history and and time and even now. But, like, the reason that the early church was persecuted was not because they were necessarily followers of Christ. I mean, that was part of it. But it was because as followers of Christ, they had the audacity to, like, heal the the lame and feed the poor. And, you know, they had the audacity to say, I am not going to be defined by the religious order and the political order. And I'm going to do whatever God is leading me to do. Well, one of the things I read about recently about why the early church was so radical was that it was undercutting the normal systems of authority and power of the household in Greco-Roman culture oh yeah yeah. so in greco-roman culture it's very patriarchal it's very authoritarian it's very top down it mirrors empire in myriad ways right and in a christian household there was not the head of household who's in charge and dominates the rest of the family there's an egalitarianness about it and if you read into the words of first peter you can actually see this it sometimes it gets used for patriarchal or um male dominance purposes but if you really read into it it's actually really talking about there's a new household in Christianity and it is fundamentally different than the patriarchal and authoritarian household of Greco-Roman culture. And when you start operating in a fundamentally different way, if you're in a world where women are supposed to be submissive and silent and you as a man decide to treat your wife, if you're in a straight relationship, as your equal, all these other men are going to start feeling convicted and all these other women are going to be like, well, why the hell does she get to say what she wants? Right, and it starts upsetting the culture, and so then those p- men who want to participate in those dominant systems, they're not going to want to be around you a whole lot. Well, and not to mention the fact that, like, sorry she, to center straight men in that description, <laughs> but that's who I am. So yeah, but 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 also to even like complicate it even more is Jesus says over and over again, like the slave, the last shall be yep. first, and the right. first shall be last, and that the slave shall prophesy, and that. And so the disruption, too, of, like, who is considered, like, human. Right. And, like, who is considered... Who's got access um, to God. Access to God and access to to everything. Right. I mean, and, of course, like, slavery was a little bit framed in a different way than we understand, like, slavery in the United States. But there's it's still parallel in the sense of, um, one, not being able to fully participate in community right and also one not having access to most of what community offered as well as one being seen as like the least of the least well and i think when they talk about slavery especially when paul talks about slavery i mean we can really misunderstand it and we can we can get distracted by the details but i think broadly what he's talking about is no matter where you operate in systems of dominance hierarchies Mm -hmm. where no matter where you are whether you're on top in the middle or on the bottom you're still, everybody's still under God. 
you know, and so that's why your distinctions that make you show up in one place in a dominance hierarchy or another are made irrelevant by your being under God together. And that's the really disruptive part. So if you want to make this claim about how Jesus died for all, then yeah, we need to start making sure we live on a horizontal plane with all other people. And you start looking around, looking for a horizontal plane, and you realize immediately, there is not a horizontal it's plane. Not, there yeah. is a lot of space below where I am. Sure, there's a ton of space above where I am. Well, and if you're going to want to keep your power and your normalcy, like if you are part of the privileged and you want to create that horizontal plane then it means that you have to do the work to empower mm -hmm. people who are below the point of privilege that you are. So you still have to do the work. Right. Like that level of like comfortable, uncomfortable that people are so fluctuating between is like, yes, it is uncomfortable to recognize that you are part of the problem and right. that you have more than other people. And that you might even think too that you have more access to God than right. other people because of your privilege. Right. And that was one thing I, I, I got into a discussion about this quote with, with my sisters. And one of the things I pointed out too is like when you use this framework of like all lives matter because Jesus paid it all. And, and because that phrase sort of the intention behind it is um, this idea of very specific salvific judeo-christian centered ideology is that anyone who is not christian also doesn't matter and when we look at glo the global framework of um different religions and um the people who follow those different religions is the majority of like non-christian religions are of people of color who follow those religions. Mm. So it also creates this like privileged framework too, where just by in, in essence saying that only Christians really matter and you only matter if you follow this very specific way of following Jesus as Christ and Lord, then anyone else who is not following that specific framework in essence does not matter. Right. Which is, which is this fundamentally nonsense, right? Because God didn't create Christians in God's image. Yes. God created humans in God's image. And so to, to discount any human life um, is inherently, I would say, inherently anti-biblical. Because how, how can you possibly say that anyone is beyond grace, right? I mean, in 1 Peter it says, uh, you who have received... Uh, you who have received mercy at one point had not received mercy. You who are part of the family had once not been part of the family. And so it's like, if our, if our angle is, oh, well, we're only supposed to care for Christians, then I think it's like, no, no, no. As Christians, we're supposed to care. It's not that you create an in-group or a club. It's the same issue with church. Is church about making a space where you get to have a membership card and therefore get benefits or is church a place where you go to get formed to be able to do ministry? Well, and that's the thing is the objective is what is the, what is the focus? What is the objective of yes. this? And like, I, I even see it more so as like, if your objective is just to make more Christians, then you are not being witness to the injustices of this world. If your goal is that people's life can only matter after they have become Christian, then you discount people's realities and their stories and you you really are just fabricating a form of assimilation mm -hmm. and dominance. I mean, that's colonialization, isn't it? 
is when we sort of have this framework of like you do, you cannot have access to what is you know to food to safety to whatever until you become a christian or until you you know give allegiance to the power i mean that's what we i grew up in california and you learn about the missions right. and of course like you learn about them i think in fifth grade um which are the spanish missions that were developed um from mexico all the way up to um what we now you know is california northern california and they you know you when you learn about them in fifth grade you learn about like oh, the great Spaniard Christians and they built these churches and they helped the natives right. and, you know, everything was great. And, like, you do any extra research and you realize that, no, that is not what happened. <laughs> that is a very whitewashed <laughs> that is a version very of what whitewashed, happened. Like, but most of the time what happened was, like, if the indigenous people did not convert, they were literally thrown out of the walls of these fortresses, these missions, these churches... Mm-hmm weren't just you know churches places of worship they were literally fortresses and not only that is that even after the indigenous people did convert they were subjected to a most of the time slave labor within the the compounds and the confines of the group and often were forced into conforming themselves to a european style of dress speak you know of assimilation Um, And so that cannot be the goal. And if that is not the goal, if, if salvation as a, as a point of reference of getting access into heaven, then what is the goal? Then we need to rethink what the point of this whole thing is. Well, I think ultimately it's a funda it's a foundational misunderstanding of what it means to be a person of faith. Yeah. Like, because I, I think about this a lot with churches, um, like, why are we people of faith? Is it so we can be part of the in crowd and the right? Like, do we just get there and then we're good? Well, obviously the scripture is really consistent about that, that that is not what it is. We become people of faith so that our lives can be aligned by God, right? And so the, the thing I hate about being clergy is that people think that you're the one that does the work. You know, like they come to you and you're the minister. That is not what scripture says. Jesus did not like create priests, right? His whole, his whole group of people that were with him were ministers. Everyone was a disciple. We're well, and all, all under- of the disciples had previous occupations. Exactly. <laughs> and some of them still, I mean, it's pretty clear that a few of those folks continued to work in order to participate and support the ministry. And so it's just like our job as Christians is to be formed as servants of God, right? That's actually our primary identity is as servants of the living God. And it's not just the clergy that do that. Like the clergy are here to help all of us become more committed and consistent servants of the living God. And so I think anytime we kind of have this, like, let's just make more Christians. If our goal is just to make more Christians, I ask, to what end? To what end? Because if God doesn't want more Christians, God wants more people who are enacting the will of God on earth, right? And so if we're becoming Christians, we're becoming Christians to do the will of God. And what is the will of God to lift? I mean, shit, let's go back and read the Magnificat, Mm -hmm. right? 
to lift up the lowly and to humble the proud, right? Like to, to engage in being one people as opposed to being separate people. And I don't mean that in this kind of let's all become one culture. I mean that in let's actually recognize the inherent dignity and worth of every human being. I mean, I, I always come back to the Lord's Prayer. We pray the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday. Mm-hmm. Like if you want a template for how to live your life and to what God is calling us into, nowhere in the Lord's Prayer does it say like you must be saved. It says like your kingdom come as earth as it as is well, um, earth <laughs> as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Like if you want a reference point for how to live your life, that that is like deeply infused with justice. It's like right. daily bread. We need our basic needs right. met. We need to be a people of grace and forgiveness. Right. We need to create systems and communities where we are not encountering evil right. that we are you know that we are plucking evil out of the eye of the community and saying no more and we only plug it out of the eye of the community if we pluck it out of our own eye first yes and that is so critical so essential i see you have the new jim crow sitting over there um and that book really makes very clear to me one of the central problems that christianity should be all over which is the problem of designating someone a criminal and then feeling justified in casting them out of society. Like, if we're Christians, we should be fundamentally against that. We should be fundamentally against anything that is not infused with forgiveness and redemption. By definition, if you are a Christian, you are all about repentance, forgiveness, and redemption. And so the that book just convicted the hell out of me like, how in the world is white Christianity able to justify labeling people as felons and therefore disposable? That is antithetical to the faith on its face. Well, because how we how we do that is we put people that we don't want to deal with or be in community with um, into ghettos and into institutions so we don't have to see them every day so we don't have to encounter them so we don't have to deal with them like the united states is more segregated now than it even was during segregation right and that's not really talked about as much and it's not because you know there's that i've heard that false narrative of like like immigrant culture that you know well people just want to live with their own kind and it's like that might be true in a small way but like the system is made to keep people separate from each other well but i think we need it let's let's double down on that a little bit i think that white middle class america is not ready to deal with racialized pain and so we live in suburban segregated communities we have segregated worship spaces and segregated work lives because we're not actually we don't have the stamina to deal with racial stress which is one of the things that Robin D'Angelo talks about in White Fragility is we can't handle actually talking about race. And so we avoid the shit out of any space where we could potentially talk about race, which is why people of color don't talk to white people about race because we check out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's why we can't actually see how racialized the suffering in this country is because we don't have the stamina to do it. And as Christians, 
we are supposed to be informed by the suffering of Christ. I go back to 1 Peter because we just did a study on this. And this letter is all about how we grow in our endurance by sitting in the suffering of Jesus and by participating in his suffering, it gives us real strength. Well, what is the suffering of Christ? It's the suffering of being marginalized and maligned for doing good and not lashing out, not burning the whole thing down, but saying, I trust in God and I'm going to be with the outcast, the dispossessed. Well, and you know, we can talk about like the suffering of Christ and keep it only on the cross, but the suffering of Christ was all that led up to the Absolutely. cross. Absolutely. Christ ended up on the cross because Christ yes. stepped out for the marginalized yes. and was among the marginalized. And Christ was put on the cross because he subverted the privilege and the power and said, you no longer have power and privilege. That Again, the last shall be first right. and the first shall be last. And so if we're going to use the cross as our focal point, we have to recognize that the cross is a statement about suffering and, and about injustice and about injustice because the cross is the cross of empire mm-hmm. he's not, this is the thing man it kills me that this is not common knowledge because it should be in christian circles the cross was reserved for enemies of the state the cross is the electric chair the yeah. cross is the noose the cross is intentionally used to kill people that were undermining the authority of rome and, and, and God, if we could bring that back. So uh, James Cohn in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, first chapter, really explains this in great detail. Lots of his good historical content there. But like, man, if more Christians knew how political the cross really is, mm-hmm. um, I think that things could really change for American Christianity. But we haven't been informed by liberation theology. We haven't been informed by black liberation theology. And I think, man, if more white Christians were willing to read from the place, the position of the dispossessed, um, we could really change our understanding of the cross and of the suffering of Christ and what that commitment really means. But, you know, that would that would require us to see the suffering that we're complicit in. And we have to be careful that we're all, that we're not just seeking sort of the, like, fantastical narrative. I think that, like, I've heard a lot from, from people... From, from white people who are trying to do this work. Like everyone wants to be a part of like the resistance or wants their historical legacy to be like my forefathers were part of, you know, the, uh, were, were the abolitionists sure, or my sure. forefather. You know, and that might be true, but like the reality is, is for most white folks, like you have ties into slavery and into the system and in some way or capacity. And like, you got to deal with that. And just because it happened a couple hundred years ago, it's still relevant to today. We are still walking in the footsteps of our ancestors. I mean, like for myself, like I'm loosely um, related to the largest slaveholding family in American history, the DeWolfs of Rhode Island. Um, And like, that's something that I've had to deal with and I've had to reconcile with. And yes, it's not like a direct lineage. Like I can, I can, uh, get around being like, well, we're just cousins. But like the reality is, is that's part of our legacy. And you can go to, I believe it's Bristol, Rhode Island. And there's like the DeWolf name all over that place. I even interviewed for a church in the town that this was centralized in. And um, one of the rooms of the church, the congregational church was named after this guy. Oh, wow. Like you got to reconcile that. You got to reconcile the fact that like, even some of our churches bear the names and the legacies of people who were tied into this into slavery and into 
the subjugation of people of color. And if that's part of your story, you also have the courage to talk about it and to make amends and to say like, yes, my family was part of the problem. And so I want to be part of the solution now. Have you seen the video that's going around right now uh, making sense of racial injustice, historical racial injustice through the lens of monopoly? No. Oh, so there's this woman, Kimberly Latrice Jones, who's an author, a screenwriter, etc. She was at a protest and she just went live and started talking about how, um, how to think about the current moment of racial disparity through the lens of Monopoly. And her basic argument is, let's say you start playing Monopoly and every time you aggregate wealth, somebody burns it. Mm-hmm. And let's say we play Monopoly for 400 years and all of uh, every other player gets to keep all their wealth, but every time one player aggregates wealth and resources, it gets burned. And now, after 400 years, we say, all right, catch up. How are you going to possibly catch up? How is there any possibility for equity in this system? And she gives specific historical examples of black communities that were moving to create sustainability for themselves, like Rosewood, and were literally burned to the ground. And so there's this kind of like, we cannot just say, all right, everything's zero now because I decided it's zero. We have to recognize... Well, that's a point of privilege, too, to say that everything is zero. Exactly. Well, and it's, it's, it's a farce. It's, a, it's, it's completely fundamentally untrue. Yeah. But like to say, all right, now we get to start over. Well, can we start all the way over? I mean, are we talking about dismantling all systems of durable wealth and recreating and totally inclusive society? Well, And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, like Jesus didn't start over. Jesus subverted what already was there. Exactly. Jesus took the the ingredients of the law and said, I'm going to fully deal with these ingredients and make something out of this. Right. I'm going to use what I have. Jesus didn't... Resurrection, even resurrection, is not point zero resurrection is like i feel like the third chapter in the story like right. we're we're deep deep diving into the story and we're still being informed right. by the past i mean what are all of the epistles but the early churches reconciling how to be a follower of christ while also being a jew or a gentile right. or while also being a corinthian or a roman or right. a galatian you know or a man or a, or a man or a woman or, right well, or a eunuch. Well, and even Jesus says, I didn't come to re- abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? Mm-hmm. So he even sees himself as part of a historical trajectory of the justice and, and mercy of God. You know, and I think that that needs to be taken seriously too, that like Jesus isn't even, even his birth isn't necessarily a zero point. It's part of the arc of the moral universe that began at creation. And that should be good news to us. Right. I think it is more good news to to understand that we can use what we have and create a greater good out of it yes. than think that we have to start all over. Right. Because frankly, I don't want to start all over and I don't think it's possible. Right, because you can't zero out. And I think that's where the repentance part is really necessary, especially for uh, for white Christians, is we have to start in our own hearts. We have to start by realizing, like, I believe racist crap. I believe racist beliefs. I associate criminality and blackness. Mm -hmm. I do. I have learned that. Cops was a program that was on when I was a kid. Like we are the generation that was born into the drug war. 
right? And so all of our perspectives on reality and race are deeply, deeply informed by the pervasive drug war in our country, which was waged almost exclusively against poor people of color. And so that has profoundly colored our thinking. And as Christian people, we need to be committed to uprooting any belief inside of us that negates the core belovedness of human beings. And criminality is a convenient way to dismiss someone as unworthy. That's why the epistles say really regularly, visit people in prison. It doesn't say visit the good people in prison. <laughs> it doesn't even say visit the repentant people in prison. It says care for the people in prison. Care for people, especially the people you think aren't worth it. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> I just feel like, I, I just feel so sad that Christianity isn't inherently understood as a movement for the dispossessed. Like, how did we get so far off that people can actually have to ask, are you a church that believes that black lives matter? Are you a church that believes that um, poverty is, is sinful and wrong? Like, the fact that that's even a question just gives me such profound disappointment. Because I just think, have you not read? Have you not tasted and seen? Have you not known the goodness of God? And I think the answer, even in our churches, is I'm not sure. Yeah. So I'm brokenhearted about this. I'm just, I'm really brokenhearted about it. And I think maybe that's what we need to kind of talk about next time is how do we start claiming our faith as an act of inclusion, as an, as, as a, a place to stand for justice and um, forgiveness and repentance. Like, how do we start being the kind of Christians that Jesus asked us to be? Mm-hmm. And how do we not let fear incapacitate us yes. from doing the work of yes. God? Because yes. I think that's a, a huge aspect of why <sighs> the progressive church stays silent is this fear of not wanting to be labeled as those other Christians. Yeah. I'm a Christian, but... But, uh, yeah. Katie Lloyd, who's a minister in our conference, has gave that to me. I'm It's moving from I'm a Christian, but, to I'm a Christian who. Mm. And I think that transition is a, is a big one for the progressive church. And to be unapologetic about it. Yeah. You know, as a, as a gay female, I get told numerous times that I am a heretic and that I am not a beloved child of God and and that you know all of these things and to be able to be be able to say like that that's your opinion (laughs) but I but that's not going to change me standing up and saying that you know women's lives matter that and and ultimately right now that black lives matter Black trans women's lives matter. Yes. The people who are most likely to be murdered in this country for who they are. Yep. And that that should be a position that is easy for any Christian church to take. Yes. Yes. We probably should stop now before we keep going. Keep going. (laughs) Well, let's pray on it and let's um, let's keep thinking about how do we how do we grow this? And to you, our listeners, we ask you to keep praying on it and keep asking yourselves, what is God calling you to in your justice work? And how is God central, foundational, necessary for your justice commitments? Uh, Because I I can't imagine 
a way to do this in a way that's consistent with the Lord without God being central to it. Like, share, subscribe. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much, everybody.